Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Grace Life Church. This is the first Sunday that we have our new digs, and uh, a lot of work has gone into uh, making all of this happen. And so thank you to all who have been a part of that in some special way. We're so grateful. We're looking forward to using these enhancements for the glory of God. This is our goal. This is our desire. And so thank you once again. If you want to take your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 8. Uh, Our text this morning is verses 31 through 36, and uh, just six verses today. But let me just say as we begin, this passage of Scripture is absolutely paramount for our understanding. This is the beginning of one of the most important passages of Scripture in the Bible. Because as we will see, Jesus will flesh out the meaning of belief in him. And that's, this is what we're going to be centering our attention upon this morning. The title of the message is, as you see, the truth will make you free. And last week, uh, as we looked at verses 21 through 30 of John chapter 8, we, we spent some time on the idea of conditionality. In other words, life is full of conditions. The Bible is full of conditions. If you do this, then this will happen. But if you don't do this, then this will happen. And at issue was the conditional statement that Jesus made to those in the crowd as he was teaching in the temple. And he said unequivocally that if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Verse 24 says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And this is the consistent message of the gospel, right? For a person to receive forgiveness from the due penalty of their sin, he or she must believe in Jesus Christ. For instance, in Acts chapter 16, in verse 31, when Paul and Silas were in prison in the city of Philippi, the the Philippian jailer asked them, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, in verse 16, John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul told those in the church in Rome that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for with the heart a person believes." resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And we could go on and on and on with passage after passage after passage in the Bible that essentially says the same thing. To receive eternal life, you must believe in Jesus. But as Jesus continues in his confrontational teaching with this crowd at the temple, he turns his attention to those in verse 30 who are said to have believed in him And verse 30 says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. In other words, these are people who had acknowledged, at least at some level, a rudimentary belief in Jesus. But what we'll find today, not all belief, not all faith is a saving faith. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that these people's belief was not a saving belief. And so just so we're all on the same page as we begin today, we need to jump ahead a little bit here just to see how Jesus describes these people who are said to have believed in him. In verse 34, for instance, 
He tells them that they are still slaves to their sin. And according to verse 40, they didn't really love Jesus. In fact, in verses 44 and 45, Jesus tells these people that they had refused to truly believe in him. And they were really of their father, the devil. And then in verse 59, it says that these same people who supposedly believed in Jesus began to throw stones at him to try and kill him. So let me read our passage for this morning, verses 31 through 36, and we'll begin to make sense of what is going on here. So we'll begin in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have power, yet uh, have been enslaved to no one. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so what we just read was the start of Jesus beginning to clearly teach on what he means by believing in him. And this breaks down pretty nicely into Jesus giving three clarifications about what true belief in him looks like. And the first clarification is belief in Christ is predicated upon the truth. It's predicated upon the truth. Look at verse 31. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so Jesus says that a person's belief is proven out over time. If a person truly has believed in Christ, they will continue in his word. The word continue in the Greek is the Greek word meno, and it means to remain or to abide. In fact, it's translated abide in the New King James Version, the ESV, and the Legacy Standard Bible. And so those who believe in Christ prove out their belief by abiding in the truth, by remaining in the truth, or by continuing in the truth. They never defect from the truth. They may not always fully understand the truth, but they never willfully defect from the truth. Now let's all go back to when we were saved. Let's all go back to that moment in time where the Lord opened our eyes to his truth and we believed in Jesus. We believed that we were a sinner in need of a Savior. We believed that Jesus indeed is the Savior. And by believing in him, we believed that we would have eternal life. And so we go back to that moment in time, and some of us grew up in the church, and we had some knowledge about Jesus, we had some knowledge about God, we had some knowledge about the Bible, but it was at that time where our hearts were illuminated by the Spirit, and so we saw how the Bible applies to us in particular, how it applies to us personally. And so we, we trusted in Jesus, we, we believed in Jesus. But I look back at that time in my life, and you can look back at that time in your life, and you can see the steady growth that we have experienced over time. 
right? We have grown in our understanding of the Bible. We have grown in our understanding and appreciation of God. We have grown in our understanding of Christ. We've grown in our understanding of the depths of what he did for us. So we're not saying here, and Jesus is not referring to those who would grow in their faith. He's talking about those who wouldn't defect from the faith, those who wouldn't defect from the truth. And so this not only includes pouring over the truth and rejoicing uh, in the truth and relying on the truth, but doing the truth, doing the truth, living out the truth. And so obviously, none of us can do this perfectly because we all still deal with sin and the flesh, and we live in a world that is orchestrated by Satan, the three great enemies of the Christians, Satan and his demons, the world system that, that Satan operates in our own flesh. And so we're up against it in the Christian life. We have those enemies who would like to see us fail. They would like to bring us down. They would like to cast doubt in our hearts as to whether or not we truly are believers in Jesus Christ. But abiding in the truth should not only be our heartbeat or our desire, but it should be our regular practice. Jesus will later say in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments, right? In other words, a person shows their genuine belief in Christ by practicing love for him. And their love is demonstrated by their obedience to Christ, literally as they follow Christ as a disciple, verse 31. As we've said, a disciple of Christ is an ardent follower of Christ. By the way, Jesus is an expert on this subject because he is the object of our faith. But as we see here in the text, not all belief is genuine belief that leads to salvation. So turn with me back to James chapter 2, and we're going to try to understand this as best as we can because honestly, as I have been working on this all week, honestly, uh, this, this stuff is way above our pay grade. So I don't determine who is saved. You don't determine who is saved. Uh, we don't know. I've literally had people over the years come to me and ask me, Pastor Dave, am I saved? I have no idea. All we can do is look and examine our hearts examine our lives against what the scriptures talk about as to those who have been born again. And so that's all we can do. But as we look at this today and as we examine this, it's, it's very telling because there are a lot of people, I think, that would say that I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And yet upon examination of their life, we ask the question, how is that? How is it that you believe in Jesus and yet you're not abiding in the truth? Look at verse 14 of James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? 
Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? This is helpful for us as we look at this. This is James who is talking about faith. He's talking about belief. He's trying to get his readers to understand that there's something to genuine faith. There's something to genuine belief. In fact, he's saying that without works, it exhibits that a person's faith is not genuine. So there is such a thing as a dead faith. And that makes us nervous, doesn't it? It makes us a little bit nervous to think about that, that there, there's this, this faith that doesn't measure up to the standard by which we are called to believe in Jesus. I would love to spend an hour unraveling all of this and to be able to go through this and try to help us to understand that, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is very helpful for us in this. Because it says that saving faith is a gift of God. It's a, it's a gift of God. It's a gift that God gives to us. And so grace is a gift. His faith is a gift. It's not as a result of works. So James is saying that there is such a thing as a faith that doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce good works. It's a dead faith. And I think as we look back and we look at these people who supposedly had believed, their faith, their, their belief was rudimentary at best, but as we'll find, it's a dead faith. They had an intellectual assent as to who Jesus was. They understood a few things about who Jesus was. They were, in fact, standing before Jesus as he was teaching in the temple Salvation is not as a result of works. All throughout the book of Romans, we see over and over and over and over again, justification by faith, justification by faith. This was the rallying cry of the great Protestant Reformation as Luther posted his 95 theses on the door to Wittenberg. And, and it was all about salvation is not on the basis of works. It's not giving to the church. It's none of these things not paying indulgences to pay for the sins of other people. Salvation is all of God. But works will naturally flow from the gift of true saving faith. Works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. And all of this, as we're going through this, all of this really slams the door shut on what has been referred to as easy believism. Have you heard that term? Easy believism. Listen to this commentary on easy believism. I think it's helpful. Easy believism is a somewhat derogatory term used by opponents of the view that one needs only to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. 
From this, they conclude that those who hold to sola fide, faith alone, teach that no corresponding need exists for a committed life of Christian discipleship as proof of salvation. However, that is not what sola fide means. True faith in Christ will always lead to a changed life. Another common usage of the term easy believism is in regards to those who believe they're saved because they prayed a prayer with no real conviction of sin, no real faith in Christ. Praying a prayer is easy, thus the term easy believism. But there is more to salvation than mouthing words, end of quote. And it was this misunderstanding of easy believism that prompted John MacArthur to write an excellent book on this subject that he entitled Hard to Believe. Hard to Believe. It, it, salvation is not hard. It was not intended to be hard. Expressing faith in Christ is not hard. Uh, this is not something that we work at. It's a play on words. It's to combat easy believism that I just shared with you about. As I've mentioned on many occasions, I was actually a victim of the errant teaching of easy believism when I was asked to repeat these words after me as a young child. And when I did, I was then pronounced saved. Just repeat these words after me, and you'll have eternal life. Is that anywhere in the Bible? Just repeat after me. Just walk an aisle. Just sign a card. Pray a prayer. Is that anywhere in the Bible? Is that what true, genuine belief is? So I was told that I was a Christian. Why? Because I repeated these words after another person. So for 10 years, 10 years, I had this false sense that I was a Christian. I was five years old. Five years of age when I repeated those words after the person. And then I was then rushed into the baptismal waters as a sign that I had been regenerated, that I had truly believed in Jesus Christ. I didn't know anything about salvation. I was five years old. I had very little understanding about what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. I had very little understanding, even though I knew a lot of the Old Testament stories. I had very little understanding about the, the gift of grace and what faith is and what trust is and all these kinds of things. I was just a little kid who repeated these words after me. Very dangerous. Jesus says here in verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so a good Bible student's going to ask the question, free from what? Right? Free from what? And the answer is free from the bondage of sin. And we'll consider more about that freedom in just a moment, but, but Jesus was all about the truth. In fact, he was and is the truth. 
And as the truth, he's the perfect disseminator of truth, the final arbiter of truth. But all that to say is that Jesus knows the power of the truth. Jesus will later speak of the power of the truth when he'll say in John 17, in verse 17, as he prays to the Father, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. This is the truth of of God's word. The writer of Hebrews would later say, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The point is, if a person is not abiding in the truth, what assurance would they have that they are a true believer in Jesus. Because Jesus would say, by their fruits you will know them. My good friend, when I was growing up, had pear trees in his backyard. So how do we know they were pear trees? Well, Because that was the fruit that the trees produced. My grandfather had these huge apple trees in his backyard. How do we know that they were apple trees? Because that was the fruit that those trees produced. But apples and pears are not the same thing. And so Jesus' point is, these people didn't bear the fruit of a believer in him. Primarily, he says, because they didn't abide in the truth. They didn't abide in the truth. They didn't continue in the truth. And you remember the parable of the sower of the seed. These people were like the seed that was sown on rocky soil. Luke 8 and verse 13, those on the rocky soil are the ones who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and yet these do not have a firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. I could tell you of story after story after story of people that I thought were a true believer in Christ. I had given them the gospel. I had heard them even cry out to God to save them from their sin. I almost can't reconcile some of it because I thought I saw fruit in their life. I, I thought I saw a hunger for the things of God. I thought I saw that they loved God. They loved Christ. They wanted to be a part of His church. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Something happened. And, and I, I read back Luke 8, 13 about those on the rocky soil and, and, and they received the word with joy and yet there's no root. And so they just burn out. All of this is way above our pay grade. It could almost get us a little bit cynical because we have nothing to do with a person's salvation. We have nothing to do with it. All we can do is be faithful. And I had to reconcile that in my heart because some of the people that I thought were a believer, I, I heard from the mouth of some of these people from the baptismal waters, this testimony that made me cry. And yet, They just fizzled out. Have no interest in the things of God. Haven't darkened the door of a church in 20 years. 
what in the world has happened? Their life didn't bear the fruit of a believer in Christ. Maybe a little at the first, but later it fizzled out. So perhaps it was this account that Jesus had with these people in the temple that precipitated the Apostle Paul to implore the church at Corinth to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. And then warn those same people against believing in vain in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 2. The word belief or believed here means more than just an intellectual assent to certain information or facts. Remember, the demons believed and shuddered. We just read that in James. The Greek word for belief or believed is pistos. It's pistuo in the verb form, and it carries the idea of trusting in or placing one's faith in something or someone. At the heart of belief is being fully convinced of something. Fully convinced of something that brings about an unwavering trust, an unwavering commitment in that object. And of course, the object here is Jesus. The proof that they didn't truly believe is they didn't continue to abide in the truth. And this is proven out because they were never set free from the bondage of sin. Which leads us to the second clarification of belief in Christ, and it's the belief that releases the sinner from the slavery of sin. Christ releases the sinner from the slavery of sin. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So they, they invoke the name of Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish people, and they, they tell Jesus that they have never been enslaved to anyone. So what is all this talk about being free? And so Jesus then tells them that everyone who commits sin is enslaved to sin. Jesus is not talking about the commission of individual sins because everyone commits sin. If you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you, right? So John later clarifies all of this. So we all struggle with sin. That's not the point. He's not talking about the commission of individual sins. He's talking about being enslaved to sin. This is something completely different. Hence, the use of the words like slavery and freedom. He's, he's referring to the regular and persistent practice of sin with little or no restraint. The Apostle John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. You could turn there if you'd like. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. I'll read it to you. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So what he's basically saying is that there is a, a holy law of God, and sin is a violation of that holy law. 
You know, he says, that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came to be the substitute for people who deserve to die for their sin, and he died in their place. He was sinless, and he died for sinners like us. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. He's talking about those who are still enslaved to sin. Those who continually practice sin. He's not talking about committing an individual sin. He's talking about someone who swims in sin. That is their life. That is who they are. They have no desire to overcome that sin. That is who they are. And he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And so I often say to people, because those who practice righteousness are living out the change that's happened in them, that is an evidence that we're a Christian, that we live righteously, we live out this righteousness. So when we come to faith in Christ, there's this great exchange. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. So we don't present our own righteousness to God to save us because we're sinners. We present the righteousness of Jesus Christ who sacrificially died in our place. Does this make sense? So it's not us. It's not we don't present ourselves to God. We present Christ to God who died in our place. He was our substitute, our, our sacrifice. And so he receives us because of the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to our account. So therefore, we're given the Spirit of God, and we then can live out who we now are in Jesus. This sounds really complicated, and I'm not trying to make it more complicated than it is, because it's very simple. It isn't hard to believe. It isn't hard to believe. But the question isn't that. The question is the, the sincerity of the belief. What is the belief? And that's what he's trying to get to here. He goes on to say, the one who practices sin, keyword practices, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one has been born of God who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually because he's been born of God. If 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 Salvation is simply repeat these words after me, and that's all that it is. It's like this empty fire insurance. That's not what happens in salvation. What happens in salvation is we are changed by the power of the Spirit of God. We have been given an abundant life to live for Christ. We have new thoughts, new desires, new actions because Christ lives within us. The Spirit of God lives within us. It's not hard to believe. It's just what is the belief? 
The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, John says later in 1 John. No one who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin continually because he's been born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother and his sister. So I was thinking about this, if you're following along here in verse 10, in 1 John chapter 3, by this the children of God and the children are devil and of the devil are obvious. And I was asking myself the question, who, who is this obvious to? It's obvious to God, but sometimes it's not obvious to us. Sometimes it's not clear cut. When somebody comes to me and says, am I a Christian? I don't know. I wish I could help you. I don't know. It's obvious in that there's a standard by which we are to live for God, and there's a changed life and all of that. But as I said earlier, we grow in the Christian life. And so when I came to faith in Christ, I was, a, in a sense, a baby Christian. I learned, I grew, I went to Bible college, I sat under the, the teaching of God's Word for four years, I, I absorbed the Word, I've been a student of the Word for the last 30 years in ministry, and I've I, I poured over it. I'm not, I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible, I've grown immensely. I've changed my understanding of things over the years through study. And so I, I just, I feel like all of this is above our pay grade. But this is what the Bible says. So we must look at it. It's not to cast doubt in the heart of anyone that, are, am I truly a believer in Christ? That's not the point. He's talking about these particular people in this particular situation who were standing before him, who had said that they believed in him, but they showed no evidence at all of a true believer in Christ. And when I read that to you earlier about all these things, about, uh, you know, they're, they're of their father, the devil, they want to kill Jesus. I've, I've never known anybody that wants to kill anybody. I've never known anybody that wants to harm somebody in that kind of a way. These are serious things as they're described here in John chapter 8 about these particular people. I went to a large inner city public high school and it was virtually unheard of for a sophomore to start on the varsity basketball team. And so I was just as shocked as everyone else when the varsity head coach approached me and he said, you're going to be our guy to start at point guard. He loved the fact that I was at the time six foot three, could see over the defense, but I'd never played point guard before. The coach changed my position. He did that. I didn't do that, he did that. And so I had to practice my new position. And so I'd get to school early and leave late so that I could put in the necessary practice because I wanted to practice my new position. I was not, I was like a novice at playing point guard. 
And there's a lot that goes with it. The point guard on a basketball team is like a, the quarterback on a football field. And so I've been thrust into this new position. The coach had changed my position. So it was up to me then to take that seriously and practice my new position. That was my part in trusting in the coach that my position has been changed. I think the point of this is that these people's position never changed. And instead of practicing righteousness, they continued to practice sin. Which brings us to the third and final clarification of what true belief is. And it, it's belief in Christ produces freedom. <laughs> Aren't we glad for that? Aren't we so glad for that? Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. When I was a kid, my, me and my siblings were out at my grandparents' house, and they lived out in the country on a very small farm, but we always liked to go out there because we grew up in the city. And uh, one day we were outside playing, and genius me uh, took this big stick that I had and I hit the metal cap, that metal cap that is on the top of the propane tank. And we were out playing around, and I took that thing and I whacked it. Oh, my goodness. I hit that thing. It reverberated. We all heard it. I irritated a large colony of wasps. So they came out by the hundreds. And they started stinging me, punishing me, stinging me, <laughs> They got up under my shirt. I was yelling and screaming like a baby. My aunt heard me screaming. She comes out of the house, takes off my shirt, rushes me into the barn, and shuts the door. I was finally free from the swarm of wasps and their stinging. Oh, I think a wasp or two may have snuck in the barn. But I was finally free from the onslaught of those wasps. This is what happens when we believe in Christ. He rescues us from the onslaught of sin. We are free from the ravages of sin. Sure, there may be a wasp that sneaks into the barn, but not like it was. You see, only the Son can make us free. And that freedom, verse 36, is such a gift from Him. In that same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we'd referred to earlier, where Paul told those who claimed to have believed to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. This is what he wrote in verses 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the enslavement, the bondage of sin. Before the Lord did his work in us, that's who we were. We couldn't help but practice sin. That was our position. And so we practiced it, and we were pretty good at it. We were pretty good at it. 
But God did this amazing work in us, and he changes our position. He gives us uh, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and now we look at that and we go, that's who we used to be, this is who we are now. We don't want to go back over here and bang that top of the propane tank so that those wasps would come out and engulf us. No, we want to stay as far away from that tank as possible because we have a new position. Our position is to live out our love for Christ. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That should be our heart. That should be our goal. If we know Christ as our Savior, we are free. We're free from all of that. We have been freed from the sting of death and the power of sin. Paul would say in Romans 6 and verse 14, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. We're all here today because of the grace of God. We celebrate the grace of God. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, and in Him alone. It's all of God's grace. None of us would be here if it wasn't for God's grace. None of us would want to have any sort of thing with, to do with God or with Christ if it wasn't for God's grace. His grace is a gift. He has given it to us. He deserves all the credit. In your bulletins today, I wrote a little article. I do this each month. And the article is entitled, The Soliloquy of a Senior Citizen. I just turned 60, so I get the discounts and all that. Nice. A soliloquy is sort of talking to yourself. That's essentially what a soliloquy is. Talking to yourself. So I wanted to talk to myself, and I did this past week. I was by myself, so nobody thought I was being weird. But I I was literally talking about what is important in life. Do you ever do this? Do you ever just sort of get away, spend some time with God, and just to reflect on what is important in life? What is important to you in life I would encourage you maybe when you're alone sometime just to take out a piece of paper and jot down what's important to you in life. It really helps to examine our priorities. It really is good. And my life has been simplified over time. I was able to, in my little soliloquy that you have in your bulletins, I was able to just kind of pare things down as it relates to fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with His church, fellowship with my family, and fellowship with my friends. And honestly, I was able to just categorize the things that are most important to me in this life. As I get a little bit older, I just want to finish well. I just want to finish well. I was talking to somebody the other day I don't remember who it is because I'm getting older and I forget things. But somebody said to me, Pastor Dave, I just want to finish well. I just want to finish well. And I thought, you know what? Me too. Me too. I'm certainly 
uh, not perfect. I've not lived in any way a perfect life. I sin. Hopefully I see that sin and I confess that to my Lord. He forgives me. Sin's no longer our master, folks. We're free. We're free. We're, we're free in the sense that we're not any more no longer bound by our sin, so we've been freed from that. But Christ is now our master. And so he's the one that we serve. He's the one that we want to please in this life. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve. And mercy is God not giving us that which we do deserve. Folks, let me just say this. Jesus is a wonderful, merciful Savior. Lord, as we've looked at this today, we come from this and we go, it's amazing what you've done in our lives. You've given us a new desire. You've given us a genuine heart desire to follow after you. You have saved us from our sin. You've freed us from the bondage of sin. And now we desire to walk with you and to serve you and to love you and to honor you and to obey you. And that's not natural. A natural man doesn't desire those things. But we do because of your gift of grace. And that is all of you. That is your gift to us. And we cannot say thank you enough for what you have done for us through Christ. And so we thank you in uh, the most humblest of ways to be able to acknowledge that this not us. We don't perform. We don't try to please you through works. It's all you working in and through us, through your Spirit, who you've gifted to us. And so we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for changing our position. But may we live out our new position in a way that would please you and, and honor you. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ, his position or her position has never been changed by the power of your Spirit, I pray that your Spirit would convict them of their sin and that they would turn to Jesus Christ in faith it's not hard to believe. You have instructed all sinners to turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ and in Him alone. And Lord, I pray that You would do a work in the hearts of those who need it today. We thank You and praise You. Thank You so much for the gift of our salvation. Thank You so much for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.